So kids, I need you guys to go ahead and raise your hands up so I can see where you all are this morning. Raise your hands. All right. So today, we were actually supposed to have a couple pictures on the slides, but somebody, I'm not going to say who it was, but it was me, forgot to put those slides in the presentation. So we don't have any pictures, so we're going to have to use our imaginations today. So who knows what a family tree is? Levi? So like in your backyard, you've got a tree and your family's in it? No, not like that? Something to remind you of your family. So your family tree is like a list of people in your family, right? Okay, so a family tree would have your mom and dad and your brothers and sisters and your grandparents, right? Okay, so who can tell me the name of their grandpa? Uh, Zaley? Robert? Okay, who else? Who else knows their grandpa's name? Zeke? Tom? Uh, Matthias? David? Born girls? Bob? All right. So, Robert, Tom, David, Bob. All right, now who can tell me their great-grandpa's name? So we're going to go up a level. Dinah? Jerry? Does anybody else know their great-grandpa's name? Zaley? Tom? James. James. Hey, no asking your parents. That's cheating. <laughs> Landon? Watson? All right, now who knows their great-great-grandpa's name? Great-great-grandpa. Great-great-grandpa. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Dinah and Sophie's great-great-grandpa's name is Presley. And the only reason why I know that is because I called my dad yesterday and asked. Uh, Today, in our passage, we get Jesus' genealogy, which is like his family tree. And in this list, we find out who Jesus' grandpa is, his great-grandpa is, his great-great-grandpa is, his great-great-great-grandpa, his great-great-great-great-great-grandpa, all the way to like 74 greats. So, kids, I would encourage you today to go home and ask your mom and dad about why this list is in the Bible. Like, why does it matter who Jesus is related to? Uh, Parents, I would encourage you to, to listen so that you can go home and answer that question for your kids. So you can tell them why it matters that Jesus is related to people like Abraham and David and Adam and what that tells us about who our Savior is and what he's done for us. Uh, Let's read our passage this morning. So go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 3. We're going to read verses 21 through 38. Again, that's Luke chapter 3. And we're going to read verses 21 through 38. And no one can laugh when I butcher some of these names. All right, now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. 
Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathed, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Ezli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonanan, the son of Resha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kozum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malia, the son of Minnah, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Afarxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you that you sent your son into this world. That he was born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under its curse. God, we thank you that Jesus is the son of David. He is the promised messianic king. We thank you that he is the son of Abraham, that he's the promised seed that would be a blessing to all nations. And we thank you that he's the son of Adam, the one who would redeem not only Israel, but all of humanity. God, we pray that today as we look at your word, that uh, in Luke 3, that we wouldn't just see a you know, a brief introduction to Jesus' ministry and his baptism and then this, this boring list of names, but that we would understand that in Luke's gospel, you are telling us more about who Jesus is and what he's done for us, what he came to do for us. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your uh, all-the-time perfect obedience to your Father in our place. We thank you for your sacrificial death in our place. We thank you that you continue to stand in our place, interceding and mediating before your Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So in this passage we just read, there's, there's two things we get today. The first is that we uh, get Jesus' baptism. And then the second thing is we get the introduction to his ministry and his genealogy, that, that big, long list of names that we read. And so thus far in the Gospel of Luke, we've kind of been flip-flopping back and forth between John the Baptist and Jesus. So Luke will tell us something about John the Baptist, so like how his birth was announced through Gabriel to Zechariah in the temple. And then in the very next passage, he'll tell us something about Jesus, how Jesus' birth was announced through Gabriel to the Virgin Mary. And he's been going back and forth kind of this whole time that we've been in the Gospel of Luke. But today, we kind of turn a corner in Luke's Gospel. Last week, we were in a passage about John the Baptist. Today, we flip back over to Jesus, but then we're going to stay on Jesus for the rest of the time. 
And, and really, that's where the focus has been all along anyway, right? Even when Luke is telling us about John the Baptist, he's telling us about John the Baptist because John the Baptist only matters because he's the forerunner of the Messiah. So everything he says about John the Baptist is really something that he's saying to us about Jesus. And so today, we flip to focus solely on Jesus. And he tells us that Jesus came to be baptized. He tells us that he started his ministry, and then he gives us his genealogy. So the first thing that we see in verses 21 and 22 is that Jesus is baptized. And right away, and when we find out that Jesus came to be baptized by John, it should cause us to ask some questions. Right, last week we saw that John the Baptist offered a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So he was, he was doing his ministry, he was preaching the good news that God was sending a redeemer, he was telling people that they needed to repent of their sins so that they could be forgiven and be baptized. And so Jesus comes to be baptized. And the question we should ask is why is Jesus getting baptized? Right, Jesus doesn't need to repent. He doesn't need any sins forgiven. Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every way as we are, in every respect, yet he was without sin. So there's nothing for Jesus to repent of. There's nothing that he needs forgiven. So why is he coming to be baptized? And here, Matthew's gospel can help us out. And there's going to be some slides behind me. In Matthew 3.14, Jesus comes to John to be baptized, and John says, no. He says he doesn't want to baptize him. He says, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? His question is, he's saying the same thing we've been saying, right? Jesus doesn't have anything to repent of. John does. John's the one that sinned. John's the one that needs to be baptized by Jesus. He's saying, why are you coming to me for this? Jesus answers him in verse 15. He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus says that this is the way it's got to be in order to fulfill all righteousness. In Matthew's gospel, he uses the word righteousness uh, to talk about us doing what God requires. And when, whenever he talks about someone being righteous, so for example, in the early chapters of Matthew, he says that uh, Joseph was a just man. And he's telling us that Joseph lived his life in such a way to do what God required of him. And so when, he taught, when Jesus tells John the Baptist that he needs to be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness, he's saying he needs to be baptized in order to be doing what God requires of him. So he's saying he needs to be baptized, not because he's sinned, not because he has something to repent of, but in order to do what his father wants him to do. He's being baptized out of obedience to the father. That's why he comes and submits himself to John's baptism, even though he doesn't need to repent, even though he hasn't sinned. So he gets baptized. And Luke tells us that when Jesus is baptized, uh, three things happen. The heavens open up, the spirit descends in bodily form like a dove, and then there's this voice from heaven. But if we, you know, kind of quickly rush to all that exciting stuff that happens in Jesus' baptism, we'll miss what he says in the middle of verse 21. He says, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying the heavens opened, the spirit descended, the voice from heaven spoke. He's telling us that Jesus was praying at the time of his baptism. Anytime we see Jesus praying in the Gospels, we should see it as like a gigantic flashing alert warning message telling us that we need to pray much, 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 much more than we already do. 
Because if we see Jesus praying, the one who is one-third of the Trinity, the one who lives in unbreakable communion with his Father, the, the perfect Son of God, we see him who's always connected to his Father, needing to pray when he's living life on this earth, we should recognize, hey, if Jesus needs that, there's a good chance I need that too. There's this quote from Paul Miller. That's what he says. He says, if you are not praying, then you are quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all you need in life. You'll always be a little too tired, a little too busy. But if, like Jesus, you realize you can't do life on your own, then no matter how busy, no matter how tired you are, you will find time to pray. What Paul Miller is saying, this is from the book A Praying Life, which is a phenomenal book on prayer, but what he's saying is that we don't pray because we don't think that we need to pray. And when we see Jesus praying, it's a significant reminder to us that we do need to pray. If Jesus needed to pray, we obviously need to do so. And so I hope that this week, that this reminder from Luke's gospel as we see Jesus praying would cause us as we're living life, as we're going to work, as we're cutting the grass, as we're parenting our children, as we're doing the things that we do every week, we would recognize that in the midst of those things, we should be praying because we need God to work through us because like Jesus, we cannot do life on our own. He says, that the heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit descended, and the voice from heaven spoke. So that first thing, the heavens are open. What's happening here is something visible is taking place to tell the people that God is about to act. Uh, I remember distinctly being a little kid, and we would drive to and from St. Louis to my grandparents' house in uh, northwest Missouri. And as we would drive, I would, you know, do what any kid did back then, and I'd look out the window, right? Because we didn't have videos in the car or games to play in the car. We just had the road to watch. Uh, and I remember, like, whenever I would see, like, the clouds kind of parted and these beams of sunshine shining down on the earth, I thought as a little kid, like I genuinely believed that everywhere that happened, a miracle was taking place. Right? There's just like this God's spotlight on that location, on that, you know, torn down barn, that he's doing something over there. Um, and that's, that's a, a little silly, uh, but maybe a good aspect of the way that we can have childlike faith. But this is similar to what's happening, right? The, the clouds part something visible takes place to tell the people that are present at Jesus' baptism he is doing something significant right now. The Spirit descends on him in bodily form like a dove. It's, it's, it's not a dove. It's like a dove, and it descends on him. There's some sort of visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit coming down upon Jesus to signal to people that he is anointed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Messiah. That means the anointed one. He's the Christ. It's the same word. He's, he's telling us the fact that the Spirit is coming down to rest upon Jesus, that he is being anointed by God for the task that God has given him. He is the one who has been promised, who can accomplish what his Father wants him to do, and he's being empowered by the Holy Spirit to carry out that work at his baptism. The third thing that happens is the voice from heaven speaks. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. There's a couple of things we should notice about this. The first is that this is one of the places in Scripture where we clearly see all three members of the Trinity actively present. 
right? Jesus is getting baptized. The Holy Spirit is descending upon him like a dove. And then his father is speaking from heaven. All three members of the Trinity are actively present at Jesus' baptism. This helped guard against a whole lot of heresies that we might believe about the Trinity, right? He can't possibly be, you know, one God all the time. Um, He is one God all the time. He can't change, you know, he doesn't change back and forth between the Holy Spirit and uh, the Father and the Son, as like modalism would teach us, that God, you know, was the Father in the Old Testament, and then he became the Son, and later he became the Holy Spirit. Right here, all three are present in the New Testament. We see the Trinity actively working at Jesus' baptism. Then the second thing that we should see is what the Father says about the Son. He says, you are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. On the one hand, this shouldn't surprise us, right? He's God's beloved Son. Of course, He loves him. Of course, he delights in him. Jesus is the one who always perfectly obeys his father. But when we see the father saying this to Jesus, it should also be encouraging to us, right? Because if we are, have trusted in Christ, we have trusted in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation, then Paul says that we're in Christ. What that means is that if God is pleased with his son, if we're in Christ, then he's pleased with us too. What God says about Jesus, he says about us because Jesus' work, his righteousness is accounted to us when we trust in him for salvation. That's very good news, right? Because if, if it depends on me and my work or you and your work, God does not say this about us because none of us are perfect. None of us always obey him like Jesus does. And so if we want God to be pleased with us, we need to be in Christ. We need to trust in him. And so if you're here this morning and you're not someone who has trusted in Christ, you don't have salvation in him, know that God does not say this about you. He's not well pleased with you. The book of Hebrews tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. The only way for us to move from being displeasing to God to being pleasing with God is through faith, is by putting our faith in Christ so that he sees Jesus when he looks at us. And so if you're here this morning, I would encourage you to ask someone today about what it means to trust in Jesus. Ask me, talk to Justin, talk to someone around you and ask them what that looks like and how to do that. The next thing Luke tells us in verse 23 is that Jesus began his ministry around 30 years of age. Um, He's not exactly 30, he's around that age, but that age, 30 years, is pretty significant in the Old Testament. That's when priests began their service. That's when Ezekiel began his, his uh, prophecy ministry. Um, that's when uh, David became king. And so 30 years is kind of a significant age in the Old Testament. And so when he tells us that Jesus is about that age, it should clue us into the fact that Jesus' life, as we probably already know from the early chapters of Luke, is going to be significant. He has a unique role that God has given him to carry out in his creation. And then... He gives us this big, long list of names, and I'm not going to read it again, Um, but there are 11 groups of seven names, 77 names here, Um, and to talk about this this morning, we're going to kind of focus on a couple of details, and then we're going to talk about it more from a high level, and I'm going to explain why we're doing that in just a little bit, but so the details are, first of all, we should notice what he says about Joseph. When he began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age, being the son, and then there's this parenthetical statement, as was supposed of Joseph. What Luke is doing here is he's putting uh, son in like scare quotes, right? He's saying Jesus was the 
son of Joseph. And the reason why he's saying that is what we already know from the early chapters of Luke's gospel, that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. So Joseph is his father, but not in the same way that all these other fathers are related in this genealogy. Jesus is Joseph's adopted son because God is his father. He was conceived supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. So Luke, insane, he's the son as was supposed of Joseph. He's making sure that we haven't forgotten what he's just told us a couple chapters before. Um, the, the second big detail for us to notice is kind of the difference between uh, Luke's genealogy and Matthew's genealogy. And kind of before we talk about that, one of the benefits for us as a church in being a church that goes through the Bible kind of book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is that we have to cover passages like this, right? These kind of boring lists of names that are hard to pronounce. We can't just kind of skip this and go to chapter four and get to the next good thing. We've got to go all the way through the book. And that's also helpful for us when we come to complicated passages because then there might be problems that would confuse us or be complicated to talk about. And so we could just skip those and go to the next chapter. But by being a church that goes through the Bible book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we can't skip those things. Because if we did, you would all ask, hey, why did we skip that chapter? This is both a kind of boring section and also a very complicated section. Uh, we see that when we compare Matthew's genealogy to Luke's genealogy of Jesus. Matthew's genealogy is, is different, and we see it from a high level, in that he only goes back to Abraham, whereas Luke goes all the way back to, uh, to Adam. The other difference is that uh, Luke has a whole lot of names that are not listed in Matthew's gospel. And so he gives us a whole lot of information that Matthew doesn't. But the biggest issue when comparing the two genealogies side by side is that there are 38 names that are different when we compare Luke's genealogy to Matthew's genealogy. And I don't mean that like Luke has a name that Matthew doesn't have or Matthew has a name that Luke doesn't have. I mean Matthew has like this guy is the father of Steve and Luke has this guy is the father of Bob. The names are different. Most notably, the differences we see are in the name of Jesus' grandfather. And so this is a challenging, complex issue for which there are a whole lot of explanations out there. And I don't want to just fly by it and not talk about it, but we're also not going to go fully into it this morning. The reason why is because it's way too complicated and would take way too long to talk about this morning. We would just all leave here very, very confused. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do something that we've done before as a church, and that's where we're going to, I'm going to talk about it this morning, just briefly, like I already have, and then this week, midweek, probably Wednesday or Thursday, I'll post something online that will answer this question and talk about it in a written format, which I hope will be clear and lay out more uh, comprehensively what's taking place and how we should respond to this as Christians. For, for Fifth Street people, I'll make sure that Justin gets that so he can get that out to you um, because the reality is that we, we can't cover that this morning. Um, you know, there's a whole lot of this guy's the father of this guy who's related to this guy, and this, you know, person died and sister got remarried to this other person, and it's like reading it is confusing. Trying to talk about it in this setting would be even more confusing. So that's what we're going to do. I think instead of diving into all of those things, what we need to see is not 
the details of these genealogies this morning, but the overarching point that Luke wants us to get when he's telling us who Jesus is by telling us about his lineage. Because in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, in this culture, they give these genealogies because to them, genealogy matters. Right? To us, like the fact that my great-grandfather's name was Presley doesn't have a significant impact on my life today. Right? I don't have any idea what his job was and what he did, and it's probably not the same as what my job is and what I do. But for them in this culture, who they were related to had a significant impact on their life. It told people what they were qualified to do. It told them what kind of character they should expect them to have. It told them uh, significant things about individuals by knowing who was in their lineage. And for Jesus, it's not any different. Even though this is his adopted lineage through Joseph, it tells us about who he is and what he's qualified to do. And so uh, both Matthew and Luke stress the fact that Jesus is a descendant of David. That matters because God promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that he would have a descendant that would always reign on his throne. That caused God's people in the Old Testament to be expectantly waiting for a messianic king to come who would reign on David's throne once again. When Matthew and Luke tell us that Jesus is a descendant of David, they're telling us that he is that descendant of David. He is the one who is both qualified and anointed by God to be that king who reigns on David's throne. When he tells us that uh, Jesus is the descendant of Abraham, he's telling us that Jesus is the one that was promised, the promised seed of Abraham that would come and be a blessing to all nations. He's telling us that Jesus is the one that fills that Old Testament hope that God would keep his promise to his people. Luke goes further back than Matthew. He goes all the way back to Adam. And I think for Luke, he's telling us that because he wants us to recognize that Jesus isn't just the messianic king. He isn't just the promised seed of Abraham. He is the savior of all humanity. He's related to people that aren't Israelites because he's the savior of people who aren't Israelites. And so Luke's genealogy especially should be encouraging to us who are Gentiles, knowing that Jesus is the redeemer, not just of of one certain family, but of all families. By linking Jesus to Adam, he's linking Jesus to all humanity. And that should be very, very encouraging to us. Because if he wasn't made like us in every respect, if he isn't a son of Adam like we are, then he's not fit to be our redeemer. He's not fit to be our savior. Luke is making sure we know that he is both qualified and able to save his people to the uttermost. So this morning, as we look at this passage, as we look at this list of names, as we see Jesus being baptized, we should be reminded of the fact that Jesus needed to pray because he was human like we are. He's the son of God and the son of man. He lived life in this broken world and he needed his father to do that. We should also be reminded that he is qualified. He is the promised seed of Abraham. He is the messianic king in the line of David, and he is the savior of all humanity by his link to Adam. He is this new, this second Adam that will obey where the first Adam failed. Adam brought death to all humanity, Paul tells us in Romans 5, but Jesus brings life to all humanity through his sacrificial death on our behalf. And the way we benefit from that sacrificial death is by trusting in him by faith. I'm going to pray, and then Justin is going to come and introduce the Lord's Supper for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that 
that all scripture is breathed out by you and profitable and useful. Even the parts that are complicated, even the parts that are just a list of names. But that in these details, you're telling us more about who your son is and what he came to do. Father, I pray that as we continue our service together this morning, that we would know that Jesus is our redeemer. That we would celebrate his his life and death on our behalf. That we would remember that he was made human so that he could stand in our place. He could live a perfect life in our place. He could die a sacrificial death in our place. And that he continues right now even interceding and mediating in our place before you. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.